Well, there's nobody like Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord today. And uh, well, people will say, well, you know, uh, the crowd's a little thin. It's a little slim. Uh, but you know what? There's some churches I preach and one had 12 in it one day. And they was glad to have those 12. And so I'm glad to see you. I'm just thankful to get the opportunity to preach and uh, I'm thankful to be a state missionary in the point where God allows me to get to preach somewhere different every Sunday. And so I'm thankful for that and uh, I'm thankful to get to be one of your state missionaries. As I said before when I was here, I pastored for 30 years and that's where uh, Brother Matt and I became uh, dear friends. Matter of fact, we lived across the street from one another for uh, many years and uh, we are, we've been good friends for a long, long time. And uh, I'm thankful he's given me the opportunity today to come and stand in his pulpit. And so today, uh, those of you who know what, uh, what state missionaries do, my, my assignment with the state is I help preachers. I do pastoral care. And if I hear of a preacher who's in trouble, emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually, mentally, whatever, and many times they, they get in those places because... Uh, they, don't, they can't share. They don't share with their church family or their closest friends. They don't share with them. They, they need to remain strong. And a lot of times they're weak when they continue to, to burn it at both ends. And uh, a lot of times across the state I find men, and I tell you right now I'm dealing with men in their late 20s all the way to their late 70s that I'm ministering to, helping, coaching, and encouraging them uh, because they're just uh, really discouraged. And so I'm thankful for that opportunity to help keep these guys in the game, help keeping them from quitting and from, from bailing out before they're finished. You know, it's, it's imperative that we don't, we don't quit before we're finished. And so we want to encourage you today. And I'm glad to get to come. That's what I'm going to do today. I want to encourage you. I'm a, I'm a preacher by, uh, by heart and by calling. And uh, today I want to kind of share with you a message. When I was here before... Uh, I shared with the deacons, I did a thing with them about uh, some things about Jeremiah. But I'll, I want you to take your Bibles today. I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 38. And I want to share a message entitled, and I know this is going to seem a little bit strange, but I want to uh, share a message with you entitled, Mire Warfare. Mire Warfare. We don't use the term mire very much. In Georgia, uh, we don't use the term mire, we use the term mud. You know, you get stuck, you don't generally get stuck in the mire, you get stuck in the, in the mud. And so, uh, but today I'm going to be talking about uh, mire warfare. What happens to the mind, what happens to your mind when you get stuck? And I'm not talking about being stuck physically, I'm talking about being stuck spiritually. You know, when, it gets, when you get stuck physically, how many of you ever had your automobile stuck? All right, nearly everybody who drove driven very much, they've gotten stuck. Now, it's one thing. There's some times when you could be on a little incline and the grass be wet and your tires can spin. It doesn't mean that you're stuck, but your tires will just spin on wet grass. A lot of times, all you have to do is put it in reverse and back up a little bit and get a little different angle and you can get out of there. But it's something else or sometimes maybe a little push and somebody, you can move on. You're, you're not stuck. But there's other times... When you get stuck in your automobile and all four tires be stuck down in the mud and there, there comes a time when you go down so far that the frame of your automobile gets on the ground. Now when the frame gets on the ground, you done. 
Amen? It's four-wheel drive or it's John Deere tractor or it's a wrecker. You've got to have somebody else got to help you get out of there. You're not going to, when it gets out, when the frame gets on the ground, you're not coming out on your own. You've got to have some help. And so I want to share with you a message today about mire warfare and what happens when you get stuck. And Jeremiah was one who got, he got stuck. And uh, let me just kind of share some, let me just give you a little background so I don't, I don't, uh, don't, I don't have to read all of it, but I want to just share it with you and then I'll pick up in the scripture there in, in chapter 38. Jeremiah was called of God and he was called the weeping prophet. He was one who preached and taught for years and years. Nobody came to the Lord. Nobody repented. Nobody got right with God. Everybody turned and did just what was right in their own eyes. But Jeremiah kept preaching. But you know what? He stayed discouraged and he stayed despondent because he continually preached and no one came. Nobody got right. Nothing. There was never any results of what he was doing. And there was times when he got so angry with God, he'd, he'd tell God, God, why have you brought me into this and put indignation on me? Why have you become a liar unto me? This is what Jeremiah said to God. But Jeremiah was prophesying and God told him, he said, you go and you prophesy that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to come and they're going to come in and they're going to kind of annihilate uh, you. They're going to they're uh, disrupt all the families. They're going to take people into captivity. It's going to be horrible. So, so this is what Jeremiah was doing. He was prophesying what God told him to. But when he started prophesying those things, guess what happened? It made some folks mad. Have you ever seen somebody get mad at something a preacher preached? Don't raise your hand. How many of you ever got mad at something a preacher preached? Woe is me. We all, we all have at some point in time. Well, this is what Jeremiah was doing. Well, the young princes of the day, that, that day, they went to the king and they said, man, what are we going to do with this guy named Jeremiah? We've got to get rid of him. If the Babylonians do come... Man, our, our men, he is weakening the hands of war. We've got to get rid of him. Let's kill him. And this is where I want to pick up my text today. Jeremiah chapter 38. I want to begin with verse 4. This is kind of where the, up, led up to where I gave you the background. Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech you, we beg you, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in the city. And the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeketh not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. Verse 6, Then took they Jeremiah, they cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the son of Hamelech, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sunk in the mire. So here we've got Jeremiah, and now Jeremiah is stuck. He's stuck in such a way that, man, he, he's in trouble. And I want to kind of get into his mind a little bit because now he, he's stuck. And when you're stuck in the mire and when you're, when you're stuck spiritually, when you, get, when you get stuck, there's some things you need to know about it because if you live a Christian life, there's going to be times when you get stuck spiritually. You know what I'm talking There's times when it's hard to pray. Those times when you don't feel like going to church. There's times when 
You don't feel like reading your Bible. There's times when it seems like the Spirit of God is, is gone from you. It doesn't mean you feel like you're lost, but yet that Spirit, you just you get stuck. And we've all been there. There's times when it seems like we don't hear from God. It's time when, when we read the Word, it doesn't come alive. It doesn't, it doesn't seemingly refresh us. And something's wrong. Is it wrong with God? No. Something's wrong with us. There's some facts about the mire warfare. First of all, I want you to know the facts about mire warfare. What happens to the mind? There's always, it's a determined nature. There's always somebody who wants you in the mire. Have you ever noticed that? There's always somebody who wants you in the mire. Just think, you say, well, preach, I don't know what you're talking about. How many of you, don't raise your hand now, you might be sitting next to them. How many of you have, got to have somebody negative in your life? Oh, you know, every church has one. And I, I don't know, I didn't meet anybody named Ned, and I didn't meet anybody named Sally, okay? I didn't meet, now if you're here and your name's Ned or Sally, I apologize, but I don't know you, so I'm not, I'm not talking about you. But I'm, every church has a negative Ned and a sourpuss Sally in it. Every one of them. They're the folks that they say stuff negative to you and you, they're the ones that you try to avoid because you don't want to hear, hear anything from them. They may be at school. They may be at work. Somebody that you try to avoid because they're always going to say something negative or hurtful to you. You ever notice when, you, when you're high and you think, man, I want to just be a blessing to the Lord. I want to be an encouragement to others. And man, you're excited for the day and here comes old Sarah Sally and she says something ugly to you and you go from the mountaintop experience and now you're in the valley of despair and you're stuck. All day you're thinking, bless God, why does she have to be so critical? I was having such a good day till I run into her or him. It's a determined nature. You know, the devil always wants us stuck spiritually. And he uses people, and, and people will get you stuck. Did you notice what was said? The Bible says that they took Jeremiah and let him down. Has anybody ever let you down? It didn't take three seconds. Every one of you pretty well thought of somebody just that quick, somebody who's let you down in their past. We all have. You know what? That's one of the biggest heartbreaks of my ministry was is the people that let me down. But the even bigger heartbreak was those that I let down. There was times that I let them down. And you know what? There's times when we do and say things toward others or toward, toward people. And what it does, it, it, it hurts them to the point where many times they get stuck. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm not ever going back to church again. I was there one time and somebody said something ugly about my clothes. They said, said, uh, said something about this and I ain't never going back to church again. Have you ever heard anybody? When I was a kid, I had a negative experience and I just thought I never was going to go back. They're stuck. They're stuck. And the thing is, you know what? The, the devil, he, he really don't care. I mean, he wants to take everybody to hell with him. But you know what? If he can just get a believer to no longer take a stand for Christ or just get them stuck, one thing about a, a Christian who's stuck, they, they don't accomplish anything else for God. They no longer fulfill what God's called us to be, and that's to do, and that's the Great Commission. 
If you get stuck emotionally and spiritually, what happens? Nothing. You don't, what happens? You generally start avoiding the people who will be most encouraging to you. What is it about that? When you get down and out, you think, well, I think I just, I don't want to be around anybody today. I don't think I'm going to Sunday school. I don't think I'm going to church. I don't think I'm going to go to this. And before long, we just get hung up in that and we just get stuck. And there for a while, we enjoy being, being stuck. But it's a determinant nature. But it's also a discouraging nature. You know, when it said there that they took Jeremiah, you know what they want to do? They want to kill him. So now they're going to put it, instead of just taking a sword and cutting his head off, they're going to take him, put him in a, in a dungeon and just let him starve to death and let him thirst to death. And so they put him in there and they let him down on purpose. Somebody, they were meaning to hurt him. Can you imagine what it must have been like? And the Bible said, and Jeremiah sunk in the mire. When it said he sunk in the mire, it didn't mean he went ankle deep. It didn't mean he went knee deep. It didn't mean he just went waist deep. The terminology lends itself to be that he went at least chest deep all the way almost to neck deep in the mire. Let me ask you. You say, preacher, it's discouraging. Yeah, can you imagine how it must have been for old, for old Jeremiah? But the thing is, things can happen to you and I. One, one night, I was preaching. Y'all pardon me. I, I was preaching. I was about this high on my, in our sanctuary, and I weighed over 400 pounds at that time. And I, was, and I was just rocking back and forth right there on the edge. And you know what? I didn't have to worry about anybody going to sleep, man. The big guy, they nobody going to sleep. It's like watching NASCAR. You know, then nobody's going to sleep because they're going to see if the big guy's going over. They, they, they watch it for a crash. And so, man, I'm preaching like a house on fire. And I, you know, while I'm, while I'm sitting there, standing there rocking back and forth, I had a mental picture, just a mental picture, a split second, I saw myself standing on a, on, a, on a ledge of a cliff. And in that split second, I watched myself jump and I watched myself hit the rocks down there and I saw myself laying down there dead while I was preaching a, a Sunday night service. Well, I kept on preaching. I didn't quit. I didn't break stride. I didn't take a breath. I just kept on preaching. I finished that sermon and when I finished that sermon, instead of going out the back and greeting all the people who was leaving, I slipped out the side door, went and got in my automobile and went home. My wife, she drove separate vehicles. She played the, one of the instruments. And so she came in a little later and she came in and said, uh, you left mighty early. I didn't see you after the benediction. I said, no, I come on home. So she went on the back room, came back in there, and she sat down and she said, is everything okay? And I said, no, ma'am, it's not. She said, what's the matter? I said, I might as well tell you, I'm not going back. She said, what do you mean not going back? I said, I'm not going back to the church. She said, what? I said, I'm not going back. She said, did somebody say something to you? What, what happened? And I said, nothing. There's, she said, why, why, why are you feeling this way? I said, there's nothing left in me. There's no more sermons. There's no more giving. There's no more funerals. There's no more weddings. There's no more. There's nothing, there's nothing left for me to give. I'm done. There's no, I don't have anything. I feel just as empty as I could be. I didn't feel lost. I didn't feel like God had abandoned me. I feel like I was just as saved as I ever was in my whole life. But I'm going to tell you what, there, it was over. In my mind, I was done. I, had, I was spent. There was nothing else to spend. And she said, 
She said, well, what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to, I said, I'm just going to quit. I'm not going back. She said, how are you going to tell them after 23 years you're going to quit? I said, I'm not going to tell them. I'm going up there tomorrow night. I'm going to clean out my 23 years out of that office. I'm going to put a note on the, on the desk and say, I'm not coming back. Don't come, call, nor write Brian Alexander. Now, folks, I know, that, I know that's funny. And it is. It, it's funny now for me to say that. It's just crazy. But that's what I had full intentions of doing. There was nothing left in me. You talking about being in the mire? I was as stuck as Jeremiah ever was. Burning the candle at both ends, going day and night, building new buildings, going just never stopping, preaching like... All, every opportunity gone, revivals, just, I just burn it to where there was nothing left. And if it hadn't been for Danny Waters, who was in church minister relations, where the office that I work in now is one of my best friends, if it had not been for him, I don't know where I'd be today. Because I was so spent, I was ready to get out of the game and get out for good. It is a determined nature, the mire. And it's also a discouraging nature. You know, the Bible says there that he was in there, didn't mention anybody else. It's a place of solitude. That's what happens when people get stuck. Teenagers get stuck. Man, they get stuck emotionally. They get stuck spiritually. You know what? Senior adults, middle-aged adults, they do the same thing. Did you know there's rash, there's a rash of of suicide going across this country. In one week, in, in six days, I had two young men that committed suicide. Their daddies were preachers, and I had to go to those funerals and help minister that. We've had four in the last, I think the last four months, just people across it there, and it's happening everywhere you turn. And what had happened, it, it, it doesn't mean, it, it just means that individuals get to the thing, they get to the point where they think, today's the worst day of my life, and there's no way it's ever going to get better. And they do the unthinkable. They take their own life. Let me just say to you, and I, I don't know of anything in your community, Brother Matt, I don't know anything. All I know is that suicide is not the way to fix a temporary problem. It's not. Young folks, middle-aged folks, senior adults, suicide is not the way. Don't do that. There is help. Because see, that's the facts the facts about it, it's a, it's a place of, of solitude. When you mind, you get stuck, you get, you get feel like you're the only one there and nobody can understand, but that's not true. It's a place of sadness. Can you imagine how Jeremiah must have felt when they put him there to die? And then you notice something else. The Bible says, did you notice there it said that, and they put him in the mire and it said, for there was no water in there but mire. Well, I wonder why it said there was no water. Did you know that the water in the Scripture is a picture and a type of the Holy Spirit of God? Have you ever noticed when you get discouraged, you get a little depressed, you get whatever it is, you get a little bit, man, it gets where you don't have sense the Spirit of God anymore? Doesn't mean He's not there. It means we're not able to sense Him. And so here, this place, that's the facts about mire warfare. It's very determined. There's always somebody who wants you there. And it's very discouraging. But now, let me share with you not only about the facts about my warfare, let me share with you about the fallacies about my warfare. The fallacy is 
is because what happens, and what happened, had to happen with Jeremiah is that we get to thinking, somebody's put me here on purpose, or I'm here and I, I, there's no way out. So the first fallacy is to think that there is no hope. When a person gets that, listen, when you think there's no hope, that's, that's a lie straight out of hell. That's a lie straight from Satan. There is always hope. In Christ, there's always hope. There's nothing too big for God. With Christ, there's nothing impossible. With God, there's nothing impossible. But when people think, well, there's, there's no hope. Preacher, I've had them tell me, preacher, there's no hope. There is hope. There is hope. There is. Not only is we get to think that there's no, there's no hope, we get to think that there's no help. One day I came in from the church and we had a little shelf on the, on the wall right there near the back door. And it had three little old sheep on it. And it had faith, hope, and love. It's what was names on them little sheep. You ladies probably have seen some of that kind of decoration stuff. Faith, hope, and love. Well, somebody went out the door that day. I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was me or whatever. But somebody, the door slammed a little tight. Well, those, those three little sheep fell off. Well, when I got home, my wife, my wife don't have, she don't have, uh, let me say this as kindly as I know how. Um, she don't hardly have a real humorous bone in her body. She don't crack jokes. <laughs> she laughs. She, she's, a, she's a happy person. But she's she not cracking jokes, making she She just don't go into that. I don't think I've ever heard her tell a joke her whole life. Never. I ain't never heard her tell a joke. But I walk in that day and she said, I've got bad news. And I said, what happened? She said, we lost hope today. And she held out that little sheep and had, had hope was written on that little old sheep. The greatest joke she ever told was about by that. But there's a time when you say, well, we've lost hope. And it's sad to think, it's sad when, when I don't care how, what age of life we are, when you think that there's no hope. That's a fallacy. There is always hope. When I was getting ready to leave Rutledge, Georgia, and move toward Douglasville, and I was, I was concerned about, about that, and one day, my dad had died in 1985. He was a Baptist preacher. He was a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Odessa, Florida, when he had a heart attack and was gone in 1985. And I was getting ready to leave my first church. Been there five and a half years, getting ready to go to Douglasville. And my wife came in and she said, uh, "She said, Brian, you know we're going to be we're going to be packing this house out this weekend." She said, "So you're going to need." She said, "Either you're going to need to clean your closet out, or I'm going to need to clean it out." And I did what all men do: you leave my stuff alone now. I take care of my own stuff. You get you get everything else, but I get my own stuff. Don't be messing with my stuff. She said, it don't matter to me. Just get it. I said, okay, baby. Just leave my stuff alone. Well, I waited there till nearly the last day. And so I was at home and I, I went back there and I said, well, I better start cleaning that closet out. Well, you know what? I was a little discouraged. I, I got to thinking, man, I was a little antsy about getting ready to move my family over to the west side of Atlanta. And man, I, I just, I was just, I got nervous. I was getting cold feet about it. And so I went in there and I was getting stuff out. Well, I pulled out a boot box, a Georgia boot box. I'd bought a pair of boots several years earlier and just still had the box. Well, when we graduated from high school, my wife went to college and I didn't. I went into the building business. And so I was looking at one. I said, let me, I opened that boot box up. Well, what it was, it was full of, it was full of love letters that I sent 
my wife when she wasn't my wife then, when she was in college, and letters that she sent me when she was in college and I was still at home. Well, you know what? I was sitting there. I was kind of discouraged, and, and I said, well, I'm going to read some. So I pulled out one of those love letters that I wrote her. It was the mushiest, nasty thing you ever heard in all your life. I couldn't believe I was so silly. I mean, I was like a big old baby, just a big crybaby, just, oh, baby, I miss you. I mean, it was horrible. And then I said, well, man, let me see what, and I'd pull out one and I'd read it, the one that she wrote. And it would be, man, I'm working hard. I'm working on this in English. And I'm, she'd go through just a nice letter at the end. She said, I sure do miss you and love you. And that's about it. I think, man, that's so cool. I, I think, well, I'm, I must have had a bad day. I get another one. So I get another one out. I read it. It's just as sloppy and sissy as anything you ever heard in your life. I couldn't even read it. I read about one a paragraph and I fold that thing up, threw it back in there. And then I leaned back in my chair and I said, Lord, I'm so nervous. If I could just talk to Daddy one more time. He knows what it's like to move over the country and leave your home and your family. And he knows what that like. Lord, if I could have just talked to him. Lord, why did he have to leave this earth so early? And I was just having a pity party. And I was crying and I said, Lord God, I wish, I wish Daddy could give me some encouragement today. But you know what? When they're dead, that's pretty well over with. Finally, I sat there long enough. Finally, I said, well, you know, I can't sit here any longer. I've got to get busy. I've got to get that closet cleaned out. And so I reached in there and I said, let me read one more of them letters. And I read one. It did the same thing. I folded it back up. Through. When I got ready to close that, I closed that, that boot box. And while I was sitting there, I went back into another prayer. Lord God, why? Why? If I could just hear a word from Daddy today, I believe I'd be all right. Well, Lord, it don't seem like there's much hope. Lord, I don't have anybody to help me today, and I'm in a mess, and I need some help. When I got through, I said, it's time to end this party. So I grabbed that boot box up, and I did one of those letters was hanging out the side. Well, I, I reached, and I looked at it. It looked a little different. I pulled it out, and it was an envelope. And I looked at it and it had Brian Alexander written on it. But it didn't have a return address on it and it did not have a date stamp from the post office. And so I got thinking, well, man, I've had that ever since I graduated from high school. Somebody sent me a graduation a present for high school. They's probably $20 in there. Man, I grabbed my knife, man. I slit that thing open. I pulled that little card out, opened it up, but there wasn't any money in it. I just threw it down. I said, well... I thought that was going to brighten my day a little bit. But you know, I got up and I thought, I wonder. I took that card and I looked at it. I opened it up and it said, Dear Brian, just want you to know, son, I'm proud of you and I love you. Trust God. Give him everything you got and he'll provide the way. I love you. Your dad. For eight solid years, that letter had lain dormant in an old boot box. And the time when I thought there wasn't any help and there wasn't any hope, there was a God above who knew that there was something, a word of encouragement that I needed from my own father who spoke from the grave that day. See, it's a lie of Satan to think that there's no help and there's no hope. That's the facts about my warfare and the fallacies about my warfare. But then let me share with you the last thing about the faith found in the mire. 
God allows us at times, like He did Jeremiah, to find ourselves in the mire that He might strengthen our faith. You know what? Every time you've ever had a prayer answered, did you know what it does? That increases your faith. Every time God answers a prayer, you think, man, that strengthens me to tell. God is a God who answers prayer. It helps us in this area of faith. You know, faith is the cure for defeat. When you get discouraged, it takes faith. We're, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. But you know what? We want to walk by sight. It's easier. I train squirrel dogs, and man, I'm telling you what, I got, I've got one squirrel dog. She's as good as they come. But when you turn her loose in the woods, she takes off, and the first thing she's doing, she runs through that wood with her head up. She's looking, and she's looking for the easiest squirrel she can find, the one that she can see. But you know what? She hunts and hunts, and she don't see any. What she does, she finally puts her head down, and she starts using her nose. That's when she starts finding them. It's when she's using her nose. You know, it's easy to live by sight, but it's more difficult to live by faith. You know, Jeremiah, he was there. He's thinking there's no help, there's no hope, nobody's coming, nobody's calling. I'm here till I die. But there's one thing about it he did not know. He didn't know what was going on above. Let me finish this passage that I didn't finish the rest of the story. In verse 7 it says, Now when Abedmelech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon, the king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Abedmelech went forth out of the king's house, and he spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil, and all that they've done to Jeremiah the prophet whom they have cast into the dungeon. He is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Abedmelech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Abedmelech took the men with him, went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took thence old cast clouts and old rotten rags, and they let down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Abedmelech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast clouts and rotten rags under thine armpits, under the cords, and Jeremiah did so. So they drew up Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Now, as I told you, I was down and I was down. I was discouraged. For three months, I didn't go back. I didn't go back to my church for three months. Uh, Danny Waters went and talked to my deacons and said, Brother Brian's sick. And they said, he's been here 23 years. Whatever he needs, we're going to make sure he's got it. As much time as he needs off, he's going to have it. And somebody preached in my pulpit every single week for three months. I didn't even know who was preaching. All I was doing was getting well, and I was getting well. Physically, I had to have surgery, a good portion of my colon removed, and I was having all kinds of issues with that. So I went through that. But you know, when I was sitting there one day reading, I was reading this story about Jeremiah, found myself in the mire pit just where Jeremiah was. And for three days, I kept reading that same passage about him. And every time I'd come to the place where they said, that they let down Jeremiah, they let him down. And Jeremiah sunk in the mire. Every day, that's where I'd stop. For three days straight, I'd stop right there. Because I felt really an kinship with Jeremiah because that's where I was. But finally, on that fourth day, I said, you know, I probably need to read the rest of the story about Jeremiah. And I come up on this story about Abedmelech, about Abedmelech. Now, when I started studying the scripture years ago, I decided 
I want to find Jesus on every single page of the Bible. If the Bible is a revelation of the Lord Jesus, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, then I've got to be able to find Him on every page. And so that's what I started out doing. Now when I got to this, pa this passage, this is where I found Jesus on this page, was in the picture and type of Abedmelech. Did you notice, first of all, where Abedmelech was? The Bible said he was in the house of the king. And he went to the king on Jeremiah's behalf that possibly Jeremiah didn't even know anything about Abedmelech. But yet he went in. See, Abedmelech's a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on the right hand of the Father, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. That's what Jesus does for us. This is what Abedmelech is doing for Jeremiah. And so he goes in there and man, he tells him, he said, man, king, everything y'all have done has been evil in the sight of Jeremiah. You can't do this. And evidently the king was under conviction. The king said, hey, man, you're right. We're going to do something to help him. And so he sends Abedmelech and he takes him down there and he said he takes him, take with him 30 men. And tell him to take those old cast clouts and old rotten rags and those cords and tell him to bind them up under his armpits and then y'all pull him those cords and ropes and pull him up out of that dungeon. And the Bible said that they did so. So here you've got Jeremiah who's in there thinking he's there to die. No help, no hope, nobody coming, nobody calling. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, the help comes from above. And there comes those ropes down to let him out. One day I was sitting there at my table and I was reading this passage about of Abedmelech. And while I did, my phone went off. And it was a preacher and it said, Brother Brian, I want you to know I'm thinking about you today. I love you, buddy. And so I thought, well, that was mighty nice. They didn't really know what I was going through emotionally and physically. But you know what? I sit in there and I got an email. I got a text message. Then I got an email from associational missionary that said, man, for some reason you're on my heart today. I just want to let you know, hey, buddy, I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. I love you, man. Terry Braswell put his name down. When I got that email, I felt the Holy Spirit of God just say, I want you to go back. I want you to look three days. You think there's no help, nobody hope, nobody coming, nobody calling. So I went back on my phone. Three days. Men of God. All I was looking for was men of God. Preachers. Deacons. And I was writing their names. Out there in my truck right now, I've got a briefcase. And in there, it's got that yellow legal pad that I was writing on that day four years ago. And I was writing those names down. And I got down about halfway of that page and I stopped to try to think about some more. And I got my phone and I was going through there and I kept writing names. Then I went back and I read that story about Abedmelech one more time. And then I wrote some more names. Finally, I got down to where I couldn't think of any, any other names. And I said, Lord, there's got to be one more. There's got to be one more. And then seemingly out of nowhere, I remembered one of the guys, one of the preachers who had called me and I didn't have a text. I just had a, had a call from him, but I, I, evidently I'd erase it, but I couldn't. And when I wrote his name down there, Robert Anderson, when I wrote his name down there, and I laid the pen down, I just happened to look right beside his name, and it was the number 30. 
the 30th man. In three days, I had 30 men call, text, and email me. And the Lord showed me right then and there, man, there is help. There is hope. There is someone who cares. There is someone who's coming. There are those who are calling. And that's what we do, folks. Today you're here. Either you need a rope because you may be stuck or you need to extend a rope to someone else who's stuck. You know what? There's, there comes times when we all get stuck. But you know, that's what the family of God does. We make sure that they don't get to stay there because if they stay there, they get neutralized in the, in the work, in the kingdom work of Jesus. You know what? Very seldom does anybody lead anybody to Jesus from the mire pit. I didn't. Neither do we encourage people when we're stuck in the mire. You know, back in the, probably in the early 80s, I was working for some older gentlemen in the construction business. And I say older. I was 20 years old. And the closest to me, the one to me in age, was 64. Okay? I was the youth group. They were the senior adults. They, there was no in-between. And so it was getting close to wintertime, and the, the boss on Friday afternoon, he called all us guys in. He said, guys, I understand we're going to have two bad months of cold weather. And he had made his, he had made his money. He made his millions. He didn't, he didn't need any money. The guys who worked for him, they had been working with them. Most of them had been working at least 20 to 25 years. Those guys, they, they had their income made. They... They was working because they liked him and they liked a little extra income. That's basically what they was working for. But he said, guys, we're going to take two months off. And so all those guys, they're standing around there, they're shaking each other's hand. Thank God I want to go home and sit by the fire and sit by mama for two months, man. They just, they fired up about it. Well, I wasn't fired up about it. I was a nervous wreck. Man, I'll starve to death. I mean, I got to have a job. I got to have income. We was riding home that day and I was riding with the boss and he told me, he said, now, Brian, uh, I know we're going to be off for two months. He said, when we go back to work, I don't want you leaving. I don't want you to go to, go to work somewhere else. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay you while you're off. I said, let me get this right now. You're going to pay me not to work? <laughs> he said, yeah. I said, God bless him. Man, there is a God and he loves me. Hey, man, it was hunting season. You know, you just have some warm days, go fishing. You could play golf, man. You know, in Georgia, you can get by with that during the summer, in the, in the wintertime. I thought I had died and went to heaven. I mean, things was great. Well, man, the next week, man, I was off. I was, I was going hunting in the morning and I was knocking around. And there was a guy by the name of Mike Long who trains AKC uh, Labrador Retrievers. He trained them for AKC Retriever trials across the United States. And he had people send their dogs from all over the U.S. and Canada into his kennels for him to train them and then run trial, field trials with those dogs. And so he had hunting dogs, and I loved hunting and fishing and all that stuff. So when I had a little time, I'd go by there and watch him work, work some of his gun dogs. So this day I went by there, and I said, Mike, what are you doing today? He said, man, you want to go with me? I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to work my big guns today. And I knew what that meant. He wasn't going to be working just his gun dogs. He is going to be working his field trial dogs. Well, I hadn't got to go and work with the field trial dogs. I'd seen him work the gun dogs a good bit, and they were nice dogs, but nothing like these field trial dogs. So he loads up eight dogs on this truck, and we take off. We go up to a, about a 65 or 70-acre uh, field that had winter wheat in it up about that high. 
and it had been raining there for several days, and there was a lot of there was a lot of water puddles out there, and there, there was one section out there in the in the field had a bunch of mud and water. You can see water about that high standing out there, and so he's driving out there. So. We're in the truck, got the dogs on the truck. They can't see anything. So he drives out there in this big four-wheel drive truck. He drops eight training dummies in one place, eight training dummies in another, and eight training dummies in another. Then he drives back to a central place. For you to understand what I'm saying, picture a baseball diamond. We're, the truck is now parked on home plate. He's got a pile of training dummies at first base, second base, and third base, but yet first base wasn't 90 feet from home plate. It was 200 yards. It was two football fields to that first to first base. Second base, where the pile of training dummies was 300 yards. And then third base, it was 200 yards, where he had, he had a little old field mapped off. So he goes back. We're out there at home plate. You know, when he gets the dog out, the dog's named T, like the, his, like the letter T. T comes off there. When he comes off that truck, man, he's just, he just jacked up. He's so excited, he just quivered. And he's looking out over that field, and he's looking for a guy in a white coat who's going to throw a training dummy or shoot a duck or something like that. That's what they do. And, the, and so he's looking. Well, there's, no, there's nothing out there. All these training dummies, they're orange. They're, those dogs are colored blind. I couldn't even see the training dummies at 200 yards and at 300 yards. I couldn't even see them. And so he gets the dog out, and the dog just, he just electrified. He's just bouncing around. He's looking out there. Finally, he tells him, heal. So he heals O.T. up. T's just looking. And he's looking out over there, and finally, Mike says, T, get out of there. He's looking over there. He said, no, get out of there. Here, here's your line. And he's drawing an imaginary line with his hand down to that dog's nose. And finally, the dog's still looking around. He'd say, no, here's your line. Here's your line. Finally, the dog locks in. He locks in on that line. He's not looking left or right. And finally, Mike says, T. He calls his name. That dog takes off like you shot him out of a gun. He's running just as hard as he can go. And I think, man, he's running. And he's running a straight line. He runs out there 200 yards, runs right up on that pile of training dummies, picks that thing up, turns around, and he comes running back, and he's running so fast. You know, if you blew a whistle, I mean, by the time he got stopped, he's going to run 25 more yards. Well, man, that dog is coming in. Well, you know, when he's coming in there pretty close, he starts slowing down. And then when he gets right up there in front of Mike, he stops, turns around, and he backs in right there beside him, holds that training dummy up. Old Mike reaches down, takes it. I thought to myself, that's cool right there. Now, I don't care who you are. That's cool. I looked at him. I said, I'm going to have to have me one of them dogs. I said, how much does that cost? He said, that would be about $15,000 for that one. I said, I won't ever have that one. Now, I'm going to be wanting me a little gun dog. That's it. So then he takes a dog. He lines him up. He says, heel. So O.T. just spins around. He gives him a line to third base. And so he runs it. He takes off out there. Well, he starts veering off a little bit off the what we call the foul line. He be, so Mike hits the whistle. So when, finally he comes to a stop, turns around, sits down. And old Mike just takes his hand. Instead of giving him an over, he just puts his hand up like that. Well, the dog starts creeping to that, to that side. And he gives him a right hand angled back. Well, the dog just turned and angles back, runs another 100 yards, runs right up to that pile of training dummies, picks that thing up, comes back, comes flying back in, spins around, backs in there. He takes that thing. I said, oh, oh, man, what a dog. So now he's already gone 200, 400, 600, 800 yards. The dog's already run 800 yards to make these two retrieves. Now he's got 300 to go and 300 back. But Mike does something strange. He lines him up, not to where 
the training dummies are, but he lines him up to where like the second baseman stands in between second and first. He lines him up about halfway. And so he sends him. Well, old T takes off. When he gets out there about 100 yards, Mike hits the whistle. He comes to a stop, turns around. He sits down. And Mike gives the left hand. He gives him a left hand over. So now the dog takes off running wide open, right past the line going to the center field where the second base, where those training dummies were. He ran all the way across over there to like where the shortstop would be, and Mike hit the whistle. So he comes to a stop, and I'm thinking, what is he doing? I'm thinking, this is handler era right here. And when he stopped him this time, he, Mike looked over at him, and he said, what's this? He said, watch what I'm going to do. So he gets, the dog stops, and he gives him a right hand angled back. Well, I didn't even think about it, but there was about a quarter of an acre out there that was water was standing up about that high. Even there was mud. You could see where it was, the water had been receding. You could see little mud humps out there in the water. Well, you know, he runs that dog right about the time that dog gets right near the edge of that great big water. He said, I'm going to run him right through the middle of that water, that water pile. Well, you know, dogs love water. No big deal. Well, by the time he got to the edge of it, he blew that whistle. Well, the time O.T. got stopped, he is right dead center of that big watering hole. You know, I, didn't, I meant to tell you, but it was about 26 degrees that morning when we were out there. The ice, you could see there was ice on good portions of that. Well, T gets out there in the middle of that, and so the rule is you got to sit down. That's the rule. Well, when he got turned around, he was looking back for Mike to give him a hand signal. Mike, he ain't moving. Finally, T starts, well, he knows the rule. So he goes, going down, then he pops back up, look, got a signal for my dad. Old Mike didn't, didn't even flinch. He started easing back down, but he did come back up. Finally, Mike says, T, sit down. I thought, man, that's cruel. So old T went all the way down into that water and in that mud. As soon as he sat down, Mike gave him an over, sent him on back, picked that thing up, ran a straight line all the way back, slid back in, took the training dummy. He went and put T up. I remember when T jumped up on the truck, I remember saying from his rear end all the way to the back of his feet was red Georgia clay that he had sat down in. He jumped up in there. He took the other seven dogs out and did all the same thing with them with varying degrees of success. All of them handled a little different. On the way home, I couldn't stand it. I finally just said, you know, I'm going to just, instead of uh, acting like I knew what I was doing, I'm just going to go ahead and tell the truth. And I said, Mike, why in the world did you make those dogs run through the nastiest part of that field and then make them sit down in it? Every one of them wound up just as muddy as they could be. And I will never will forget, Mike looked over and he said, Brian, I've learned that in the field trials, he said, the prize is generally just beyond the obstacle. The prize is just beyond the mud hole in the ice, in the hardships of life. You know what? I never have forgot that. Because you know what? That's the thing. That's, that's what happens while we're in the mire 
One of the things is God increases our faith so that we can help others when they come to those times of difficulty as well. There is help and there is hope. You know what? If you're in the mire today, there's help and there's hope. There's encouragement. Let me encourage you today that there is, there is a God who loves you and He knows where you're at. He knows what you're going through and He wants to help you. But like I said earlier, you're either here today and you need a rope, someone to help you out, or you need to extend a rope because you know somebody else who's stuck. See, somebody can be stuck in the lostness, the mire of their lostness. You know somebody who's lost, but you've not shared with them the love of Christ yet? Are you trying it didn't go very well and you've just backed off? Listen, don't let them risk eternity without knowing the truth. Tell them. Tell them. They, they need some help. They need some encouragement. How many of you know people who used to go to church here and they no longer go here anymore? They may be stuck. It doesn't mean that just because they don't go here. If they're going somewhere, that's one thing. But many folks, you may know, they don't go anywhere. They're still sitting at home. Throw them a rope. Try to encourage them. Minister to them. Try to help them get back in the, in the game of, of life, in the game of the, the kingdom work for Christ. And if you're here today and you're discouraged, there's a God who loves you. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. As we have this time of commitment, this time of invitation, you know, a lot of times when you get discouraged, nobody knows about it but you. You don't want anybody to know because you don't want them to encourage you. You don't want anybody making a fuss. Folks, I want to tell you what. If you're discouraged, tell somebody. There's people... In your family, there's people in this church house that love you. They love you with everything they've got. Young people, if you're discouraged, man, tell somebody about it. First of all, tell the Lord Jesus and let Him minister to you and then share some others so that they can encourage you and help throw a rope to get you out of there. Maybe you've got a close friend that you know has pulled away from everybody else. Do whatever it takes to encourage them and help them. Mamas and daddies, you may have kids that's stuck right now. Whatever it is, you know and God knows. During this time of commitment, I'm going to have Brother Andrew come down front and if some of you want him to pray with you or you want to come and get in this altar today to pray, we're going to give you that opportunity. But whatever God's leading you today, don't remain. Don't remain in the mire. And don't let anyone else you love remain there. Lord, you know the needs of our heart today. God, I just pray you would just minister to these precious people. Lord, I pray for those that's under the sound of my voice today that are struggling and Lord, they know in their own heart this message is for them. They feel that. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the courage to do those very things that you need them to do. Lord, if it's to come to get in this altar and pray for someone here that's lost in the mire of their lostness, they need to be saved. Lord, that today you'd save them and bring them out of that mire of their lostness.
Lord, whatever your need is, whatever your desire is for the hearts and lives of your people, I pray you'd have your own way as our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Brother Jimmy, what number are we going to sing? Without him. Without him. We're going to ask you to stand. God's dealing with your heart today. We're going to ask you to just come.